I know you have work to do tomorrow, and we want you to get home and get a good night's sleep. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping. Now we have two seminars here. It meant to be a. It's kind of a meant to be a two-hour seminar, but I'm going to try to go earlier than that. But I shouldn't say that because then you'll hold me to it. We'll have a break in the middle as well. So there are two parts, and um, actually, before I do that, though, uh, just real briefly, let's let's share a little bit of what what happened today. Where, to, just just very briefly, where are you? Uh, how many of you were involved with the camp? So we got about half, a little over half. Wow, a lot of you involved in the camp. How many of you are in the arts camp? And how many of you are in the sports camp? And did I miss a camp? Uh, and then, uh, yeah, uh, what do you call that? Registration. Registration, organization, all that stuff that you have to do. How many, how many kids showed up today? 43. 43. That's a good beginning. Yeah. It'll, it'll grow. They'll, those kids will go home and bring back their friends. If it was good. Was it good? It was great. Okay. You're kind of excited about it. I like to hear that. So now we got some mercy projects going on. Uh, I heard some folks over at your house, Maxine. Yeah? How many were over there? Where are the Maxine crowd? Where the Maxine crowd? There's one. Are they still over there? You don't let them eat? I told them to come. Okay. You're keeping them over there late, huh? You got to bring some food home to those folks. How about, uh, what's the other? I saw a bunch of you over here working the fence. I know David. Who else was over here? Fence. Fence mending and paint. Thank you, guys. Uh, what are the other projects we had? Winnie. What? Winnie's uh, house, house. Winnie's. Yes. All right. Awesome. Who, what are y'all doing there? Well, we filled a dumpster and we ordered another dumpster to be higher for tomorrow. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Praise the Lord. Oh, man. That's cool. That's good. That's progress. That is progress. Is she okay? Oh, she's great. Right. She's very sweet. What else? Anybody else? Oh, this yep. space. This school project, right? This space. That's well, duh. <laughs> How many of you are in this space? About well, three or four, two or three of you. It's looking clean. Part of it. Messy but clean. Good progress. Good progress. Well, listen, I hope that you're experiencing uh, more than just the, the joy of serving. And, the you know, it's more blessed to give than receive. You know, the older I get, the more that's profound to me. You know, that's so counterintuitive that not receiving is that receiving wouldn't be more of a blessing. And, uh, and yet, there's no doubt, when I look at healthy people, people who give their lives away are just so much more healthy. More healthy emotionally, more healthy spiritually, of course, but even, even just their countenance. I've just seen that over the years. Have you noticed that? The people who give themselves away just have a more positive, healthy life. And um, it was interesting. I, I, I just thought of this, but when we were doing the 50-something and we were... Uh, Listening some some to some uh, videos on this very very wealthy uh, businessman that, that was you know thinking of retiring and he had the money to do it and he went out to uh, the Rockies where Vale and it, it was he said it was the saddest experience he'd ever had to be in this room 
very, very wealthy, posh sort of uh, retreat environment. And he said it was as if everyone was just dead. They were just sort of, there was a lifeless sadness. Uh, You know, the picture he got is his whole life he'd been building bridges, like building a bridge across a river, you know. But that's what work is. That's what giving is, building a bridge. You know, you're building bridges into people's lives. You're building bridges into the kingdom of God. And he said he was sitting there, and it was as if these all these people were defined by life that was building a, a, like a wharf. You know, like a wharf that goes into the water but doesn't go anywhere. He said it's like that's what they're doing. They're just building a little, you know, wharf to sit there on, and you know, and it wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't accomplish anything. And it turned his whole life around. That's when he started this organization called. Uh, uh, what is it, Second Life? What was the name of that? Anybody was in that group? What was that, that thing called we looked at? The, we talked the whole seminar of that. The whole 50-something was entitled this thing. Nobody remembers it? Yeah, 50-something. Well, we keep talking about 50-something. That's right. 50-somethings don't remember. Oh, it was a great little title, but it's halftime. That's what it was. The word was halftime. And the idea is, man, I'm just in halftime. I've got to think like that. And he came back out of retirement and said, I'm going back. I'm going to serve. And he created this organization that helps people do that that are facing retirement. So anyway, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I hope you're being blessed. But most importantly, it's to partake of the divine nature, as Peter called. You know, you're, you're partaking of God when you when flesh in the incarnation of Christ through you touches other flesh. And so you are Emmanuel mediated. Think about that. You're Emmanuel mediated. You're not Emmanuel. That's Jesus. But you are the presence of Christ in that home, in that camp. And when they touch you, they touch Jesus in a mystical way. So that's the power of what's happening this week. I hope you're enjoying it. Any other thoughts or stories or whatever? Things we can pray for? Pray for the weather. Is it supposed to go bad? All right. What will you do? Do you have access to the school? No. No, we'll be at the church. Okay. School's getting renovated over there, huh? That was always a blessing to have that big gym. So you do this whole thing without without shade? Yep. Woo-wee! <laughs> well, pray for rain then. <laughs> Put a slip and slide out there and have a lot of fun. Pray for Play for light rain in a slip and slide. Go get your big old tarp, put it out there, and have a slip and slide in the rain. That would work. You'd have you'd have half the neighborhood coming in, adults too. We used to have so much fun. I worked for four summers uh, in the inner city of Atlanta, in one of the more depressed areas there. And the greatest day of, of the week, every week, the greatest day of the week was what, do you think? You might want to guess. If you lived in the city, you know what I'm talking about. What happens on the streets on a given day? In the, the fire hose. Is that what you said? Fire hose. That's it, man. Once a week, those the uh, fire guys would come in there and open up that fire hydrant, and it was just the most glorious day of the week. We love that. So pray for rain. <laughs> Sorry, I just turned it upside down. We're not, we're not saying that for rain when it's not yeah, camp time. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I thought was awesome? What? Ivan, this little boy Ivan that comes to church every yeah, Sunday. His mom came. Uh, she mom was there. That's awesome. We haven't been able to get her to come. There's a real connection going there. So that's great. I'm like, so I went over it. Yeah. 
Praise God. Well, let's keep praying for that to happen. That's what we should pray for. Well, let's go ahead and open in prayer, if we could. Um, David Taylor, you're sitting right there on my mind. You should know not to sit in front of me, because I could have gotten you, but you shared on Sunday. So I went right on the left. David, how about praying for us? Just Would you pray for these things, for all these, just in a general way, these projects, and then for our discussion tonight? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together tonight, Lord, to serve our community and uh, show your face to, to those around us. Lord, thank you for all these projects and for all these people who are willing to help us work in their lives and homes and at different places. I pray for all these kids and families, Lord, that are represented by them going to sports camps and for the, uh, uh, the other younger adults going to the, um, I guess the kids, going to theology camp. I just pray, Lord, that you mm. read Touch each person involved here in a in a in just a a, a, a great way, Lord, and, and also give us each a chance to share with others uh, why it is we're doing these things. We pray for our discussion tonight. Pray that you will uh, keep us alert and paying attention, and to really learn something about how we might advance the kingdom. Amen. So I want to start with a story. Um, these books are for sale. Uh, if you want them, it is really, it still is in the top 10 of my book list. It's really that profound, but that short and simple. Every chapter, you'll like to hear this, is a page, maybe two pages long. Every chapter is a, what we call an anecdotal story. Uh, a story that comes out of the hood by a man who moved into the hood and uh, named Bob Lupton. Uh, had a huge influence in my life. He was gracious to dedicate, to not dedicate the book to me. My God means no way. But he did give it to me as a personal gift, the signature on it and all that. But um, this is the person who really informs the vision of a lot of what we're going to talk about. But but uh, uh, this little book, he's got several others that are much more extensive in terms of you know, maybe you've read Toxic Charity and some other things. But this book is just really precious to me because it um, it's it's just... It's just God illustrated and the gospel illustrated in so many ways. And I would encourage you to get it. It's just, it's devotional in many ways. Um, but I want to start with a, a one that I know I've read to this church before. Um, so I'm going to read it again just to get everybody on the same page. But it kind of sets the context of, of what we, we pray to see God do um, in, in our city. And it's called The Image of God. And I ne- n- rarely can get through it without crying. But anyway, here it is. Behold an infant, a normal man-child in most respects, a kind-natured child, a child with promise and potential. Watch him as he enters a rancid, smoke-filled world that resounds with the shouts and crashes of parents in conflict. Listen to him as he begins to compete for affection and food and finds both forms of nourishment in short supply. He cries, and soon his words become demanding. He pushes and grasps for strong boundaries that will assure him he is safe and loved, but finds only weak indulgence. No clear limits, no consistent discipline, just impulsive beatings and permissive disinterest from parents preoccupied by their own survival. He begins to question his own worth. School confirms his suspicions. He drops out. He roams the streets at will, disguising his fear as nonchalance. Behold, a young man, 
a kind-natured, strong, undisciplined young man. Watch him as he falls in love, marries, and starts a family of his own. See his dreams begin to crumble as he loses one job and then another. He is evicted from a string of dingy apartments. His neighbors and friends spread rumors of child abuse and deprivation. The county takes four of his children. His wife loses respect for him. He is falsely accused of bestiality, arrested, and thrown in jail. Watch now as inmates and officials violate him. Watch as the last glimmer of dignity is choked out. Behold a man, a very broken man, scarcely 40, parents dead. Rejected by his family, he walks the streets alone, head bent, shoulders stooped, hair matted, teeth rotting, drool running down his unshaven chin. A kind-natured man now babbling foolishly about a salad of loosely connected thoughts and phrases. Worthless but good-hearted, people will say, except when the volcano of hurt inside him erupts in rage. Then his eyes become wild. He claws and bats at his wife and remaining children. In time, the wildness and heavy breathing subside and he returns to his subhuman existence. He is prideless, worthless to his wife and children than the social worker that issues their food stamps. Now, watch as a miracle unfolds, a metamorphosis. The wind of the Spirit of God blows through about Lester's life. Yes, this is a real man. A man made in the image of God and reduced to nearly animal form is slowly being restored. God begins to convince Lester that he has worth, that he is loved. The message comes from many sources. A family who invites Lester and his family for a picnic. A businessman who continues to hire, fire, but rehire Lester on a job, insisting on a standard of responsible work, yet holding on to Lester with firm love. People who notice and praise Lester when he is bathed, shaved, or wearing clean clothes. A person who accepts a gift from Lester without chiding him for taking food out of his children's mouth. A minister who prays with Lester. A counselor who, interviews, who intervenes to cool, flaring family tempers and helps Lester expose his festering hurt and anger to the sunlight of God's acceptance. The people of God. It's the church. They become the actors in the unfolding drama of recreating while the wind of the Spirit breathes in new life. What potential is confined within this unattractive shell we know as Lester? Who knows, save the Creator himself, but of this we are certain. <clears throat> when Lester prays or weeps with joy, when he caresses his baby boy, we see the image of God. <clears throat> what y'all hear? Well, there's so much in that story. So just help me help me hear it. What did we hear? Oh. Okay. Being very alone. So we, 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 we have a history here. I mean, let's 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 stop and think here. Um, there is a history to that person you see on the street that looks like Lester in the middle of the story. There is a story. There is a person with a history. What was Lester's history? Where did it all begin? He didn't. He wasn't nurtured. Yeah, it began in a very. Uh, yeah, a, a context where the family was dysfunctional and he got either battered or neglected, <laughs> but not disciplined and loved. 
What else? What else did you hear? How did he get better? The gospel. Okay, what did the gospel look like here, though? In the body of people. Body of people. And what did they do? Did you hear some of the things that they did? Care. They encouraged. They cared. They encouraged. I love the story of the, of the you know, who, who brought them into their homes. Came alongside them. Came alongside of them. Let them experience consequences. Let them experience consequences. The worker who, who would fire him, but then rehire him and fire him again and rehire him, insisting on a standard of, of work that would, what? What was happening in this story? This is all about, this story is about what ultimately? What's the kind of ultimate, per, where does it all go? It's, the title might give it away. Restoring it. To what? To, to the family, to, to humanity. To, be to humanity. Human the story's title is the image of God. That's the way it ends. Behold the image of Lester. The image of God. You know, uh, it, it's so important when we start talking about cross-cultural ministry, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, because really we mean it in a very limited sense. We're talking about mostly, and I need to make this clear, we're mostly talking about go- those who have beginning to encounter and, re- and minister among those who don't. But what is that? How do we define poverty? And, um, and so it's, it's uh, some of us here are, have, have, have experienced the poverty that is in this book. Some of us here have it. And it's neat that we're together because we're all in the image of God and we all have dignity. And uh, so much of the gospel is restoring people to that dignity. And that becomes your goal. And that's a very different goal than immediately gratifying your own guilt and giving people stuff. And it takes a lot more work and gets a lot more messy. So this is an amazing story. Anything else you heard? So we, we're talking about, there's two handouts. You can look at the gospel and cross-socioeconomic empowerment. Notice that it's really not just cross-cultural. Um, i give you some stats. I'm not going to bore you, but the fact of the matter is this state is no different than most states, but perhaps more so than most, which is there's a great, great disparity um, in this state between um, the poor and, and the wealthy. Um, and there's some stats there to de- uh, demonstrate that. Um, though, we, though there have long been financial disparities within Connecticut, the divide between the state's wealthy and the low-income residents has become more pronounced, and, and that just continues to grow. Um, so let's talk about poverty for a minute. If we're thinking about engaging po- the poor and, and what the poor are, and again, it's, it's kind of... We want to be careful here. We have uh, some of those, some of us who have come out of poverty situations or are even living in poverty situations, and be, it'd be good to let them uh, here tell us what it means. Anytime you guys in the Hill especially want to explain this to us, help us out. Um, but at the same time, and by the way, I, I wish we could do this in both settings. We're here at this setting, and we're going to be talking about cross-cultural ministry in a poor community, but you know, we need to have the same seminar, Chip, in the hill. But this seminar is going to be, how do you relate to people who are wealthy or who are, or who have privileges and, and demythologize that group? Because you know, everyone in this room is a child of God. Everyone in this room is got poverty. We're going to see that in a minute. Poverty is everywhere. It's different in nature. 
Psychological poverty is just as cruel as material poverty. And I know this congregation suffers a lot of psychological hopelessness. Um, there's a lot of hopelessness, and we're going to define poverty and hopelessness. Things that lead to suicide, etc. And that happens in every congregation I know, including this one, very much. Um, in terms of the demographic that we come So what is poverty? Well, clearly, you know, uh, the causes in the Bible, and I'm just giving you this little thing. We're not going to look all this up. I hope you'll go back and read some scripture. But, but clearly, you know, the first go-to, especially by those who have, is poverty is a result of sin. You know, laziness, uh, bad manners, uh, you can just go on. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But, but that's true. There's a lot of scripture that describes how there are consequences to unwise life decisions. And, and so certainly we can explore the, doc, the idea of sin. But sin where? Sin individually? Yes. But what about systemic sin and corporate sin? Sin that, that we're going to read about as well um, in the scripture. That brings us to number two. We have this sort of oppression it's overwhelmingly when you when you speak when you find I did a, some several word studies here. There's about several words here for poor, but when you look at poverty in the scripture, overwhelmingly the predominant category of poverty is oppression. Overwhelmingly, um, and I give you some examples there as well. Uh, I tell you what, it'd be great to read some of these a little bit. Um, well, let's let's move on. We're, we've got some things we can talk about it. But you've got the indigent poor, that's the economically speaking, to be deprived of basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, etc. But unfortunately, many of us, especially in the achiever communities, uh, think that's poverty, and it's that simple. Um, just, just give them a turkey and Christmas and everything's fine. And you could not be further from the truth. Absolutely. In fact, that'd be the worst thing you could do if you understand poverty, at least in that way. So the indigent poor, it's, it's economic, it's material, sure. But it's also, again, this sociologically speaking, we're getting a little deeper. We'll see in the scripture that poverty is powerlessness. It's not simply having the lack of something we need materially. It's, it's the lack of power. Um, this is where I really want to focus uh, on something here. There's a book called Money and Power by Jacques Ellul. And, uh, and he, he's a Christian, obviously. Well, he is a Christian. You wouldn't know that by the time, I guess. And, um, and a good Christian. But he, he really tries to make the case that, that all of this controversy about economic systems, capitalism, socialism, this is a, da, da, he, he really feels like it's ultimately a red herring. Because ultimately, what you're really talking about is where's the power? You know, it's, it's whether we invest power in a, in, in a, in a government, whether we invest power in, in individuals, in a democracy. What, how do we invest the power? Because money is power. By the way, how, how would I prove that biblically? Anybody want to guess? Can you think of a passage of scripture, very simple, very profound, that would, would, which would demonstrate that money is more than just stuff <laughs> that you can purchase? Anybody want to guess? Jesus, anything Jesus said about money? Why would he choose mammon, money, to make the case that you can't have both God and you can't, well, what does he say? You can't serve. Serve. Both, that's where I'm looking at. Two masters, God and money. What is money in that comparison? It's a God. 
It's, it's a God. and It's the power. It's, it's the reigning force of our lives. It's what controls us. It's what, in, it's what we trust. So money becomes a symbol in Scripture, oftentimes, of, of that which is really the Antichrist. Now, it's true that, well, I'll have a great quote here in a minute, that, that having money is not evil... But when you read the scripture, and I'm going to read some, it, you get the sense that it's almost impossible without the, the, the work of the law of God to restrain us, that it wouldn't therefore become evil. There's a sense in which it's something to watch carefully. I mean, you see it in proverb after proverb after proverb. The danger of wealth. You see it in 1 Timothy 5, that those who, who, who desire to get rich uh, are are described there as is really you know heading to evil. The ambition for wealth is in itself evil, if if not coupled with the, the ambition to do something with it noble. And so money is power. Original sin virtually guarantees that power will be misused as to violate the law of love. Thus, oppression, albeit both systematically and personally, is the result. Of, a, of, of money that then and power that gets abused. Um, James makes the point, is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into courts? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? I mean, why would this passage be in Scripture? Now, I know what some of you are doing right now. You are just inside, pushing back, wanting to say, hold on here. And you want to look at these things differently and don't go here. But it's just clean and simple. But here's a great example of, of what I mean by money and power. In Amos' day, Amos 8, he says it this way. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? Now, what's he talking about there? I mean, he's talking about a market, a market that's driven by an agrarian economy. And, and, and how the decisions are made by the bottom line, whose only interest is wealth, to gain greater and more wealth. We will make the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances. So they're going to rig the system. They have the power to do that. They can rig the system. They have the power. They control the economic system. We will make uh, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the sweepings of the wheat. And, and in other words, it basically, in a, you know, giving a welfare, uh, 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 giving something for them to 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 immediately be gratified, giving them the sandals, giving them this. But oh, the wealth that's coming for us. Now, what you see here and throughout Scripture uh, is money and power and, and poverty. What we're, remember, we're talking about what is poverty, and one of the definitions of Scripture is that it's 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 oppressive. It's 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 a power. It's an oppression by the misuse of power, by unjust practices whereby those without political or judicial power were being cheated so as to become more and more dependent upon those who didn't have political and judicial power. By hoarding, whereby those who were gaining wealth were failing to redistribute that wealth for the common good, but rather hoarding it to themselves to sustain a growing lifestyle of ease and personal comfort. This is what Amos is talking about. You can go back and read this. It's all there. He talks about their ivory beds and then those who work in the field living in squalor. Um, 
Further, sadly, by the mid-8th century, and I'm talking about Israel society here, back in the B.C., mid-8th century, Israel society developed two economic tiers during the 8th century, so that at the expense of an increasingly impoverished, large, lower class, and in violation of the Mosaic Covenant, especially a moneyed upper class, had emerged, especially to control the urban centers for justice, power, and economic control. Go read those passages. Notice in especially verse 5 the three ways of how these businessmen were unfairly increasing the profits at the disadvantage of the poor. They were shrinking the EFA, a standard unit of bulk measure, by suing smaller uh, than proper containers. Um, Overwhelmingly the shekel, again the standard of weight, so that the buyer thought he was getting more than he really was when when, when his grain weighed in the scales, and rigging and whatever that says, in an accurate scale. Um, this was the ancient way of rigging the economic system. Notice what the law did. What was the response of the law? Well, you see it right here that there was therefore laws that were put in place to counterbalance the temptation of money. That recognizing the, 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 the temptation of money, of, of the misuse of power, you had all sorts of these system corrective legislations and here are some of them and and some of these are just downright you know uh, you know condemnations about uh, dishonest balances but of course you think of the the uh, the jubilees and the, and the ways in which during certain era sees every generation there was a systemic correction that was implemented by law just to overhaul the temptation of power abuse um, and so, we, but on the other hand, I'm kind of talking systemically here. So when we start talking about poverty, if you talk to anyone who's working with poverty, they will always tell you, you'll always hear this word systemic. Now we're going to talk about that word in racism as well. When we start talking about racism, we're going to say, look, racism or, or poverty is deeper than just individual and yet, it always begins with individuals holding... I mean, you can't ignore the individual. And so, again, Jacques Ellul uh, makes this amazing statement. He says, for then, I ultimately ask no more than to... He's talking about the cowardice of just sitting back in, a, in an abstract way and talking about systems economics. And he says, that's just so cowardly, though it needs to happen. For then I ultimately ask no more than to believe the system builder. It is so convenient. I don't have to think about what I do. I don't have to try to use my money better, to covet less, to quit stealing. It's not my fault. All I have to do is campaign for socialism or conservatism, which that means uh, capitalism. As soon as society's problems um, are solved, I will be just and virtuous effortlessly. My money problem will take care of itself. And so... um, so again, money has become impersonal because it increasingly seems as if the use of money is not an individual act, does not signify personal control, but instead results from distance and complex interactions of which our acts are merely echoes. No longer is there any real relation between an individual and his money because this money is abstract and impersonal. Consequently, moral problems concerning money no longer seem to exist. Um, so, so, so when we talk about poverty, what is it? Well, there's clearly... If you think of poverty, it certainly begins with this issue of there's a material aspect to it, the lack of of what is needed, uh, the lack of resources. But it goes deeper. It's the lack of power. It's powerlessness. That's crucial. 
You see that in the image of God story that we just read, didn't you? The, what, what that story was all about was not getting a man clothes. The clothes need to be given. It was giving a man power. Did you notice how important in that story it stuck in there? It's the man who receives the gift from Lester. Did you see that? Did you hear that? Without chiding him for taking the money and giving to his children. Lester was, was feeling a dignity to serve. How dare someone not allow a man or a woman to serve us. Because power is something we give by receiving. Now think about that, this camp, during this week. When someone, and you, you know, and, and particularly if you're in, the, in my world, you know, fairly sheepishly and apologetically receives it like feeling guilty almost because, you know, what are we saying? We're saying we want to keep the power. We don't want to feel that humility of receiving. So we're already doing some cross-cultural work right now. Uh, the image of God. Poverty is not simply, and here's the key. You see it on page four, by the way. If you follow me, it's, everything I'm saying is right here, and you can be reading between the lines. But here is a very, very important statement that, that we've got to talk about in cross-cultural. Poverty is not simply the lack of money or assets. Poverty is the lack of options, which renders one powerless over his life. It's the lack of political power, economic power, uh, social power, on and goes. Um, and it's as much a perception as a reality, you could argue. Now, stop. Questions? Any thoughts on this so far? Does this fit, you think? Whether you've experienced poverty in your own neighborhoods, whether you have encountered it or are encountering it, isn't that true? I mean, if you begin to define poverty that way, again, this is not what this particular sheet is about, but isn't that true that when you sit down with a, with a, a marriage that's ending, what are you dealing with now? A poverty of hope. There's been a loss of hope. There's, and there's the sense, one of the things I do in marriage counseling is I start off, some of you probably been in the room when I've said this, and the first thing I say is I'm going to tell you one thing right off the bat because I know it's the most important thing to target is hopelessness. When they walk in that room, it's hopelessness. And the first thing I deal with is going to be the hopelessness. And so I'll say something like, I will guarantee you I will not ask you to go back to the marriage you have right now. I will guarantee you that is not a, an option. And we're going to find ways for a future that is happier than the future right now. That's a very different option than say, hey guys, y'all just got to grit and bear it. You're Christians. You can't get divorced. <laughs> you see? I've learned that powerlessness is more power than anything. And eventually hopelessness will, will find a way to hope even if it's sense. And that's sad. Because sin always brings more destruction in their life anyway. So what is this worldview of poverty? Now here's the thing where I want you to, uh, to think about. What, what does hopelessness then and hopefulness or powerfulness and powerlessness, you could put those synonymous, what would that do to the, just the habits of your life? What would that do? How would that affect the way you treat time, space, material things, tomorrow, school, all of it? How would that impact you if you were Lester? The story we read at the beginning of the story. You're going, and you're going to school and you're coming back every day to that home that we described. How would that impact this person's life? How would they 
What would they think of a couch or a yard? Would you preserve it for tomorrow? Because you have all this hope that it's never going to be taken away or abused or whatever? Or would you use it while you got it? Time. Are you, are you carefully rush? Are you, are you preserving time by rushing around, walking fast across the street because you've got somewhere to go and you've got to get as much out of your time as possible? Or are you going to, what, hopelessly? I, have you ever, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but have you ever felt that kind of sadness where you don't want to get out of bed? Oh, yeah. I've got a whole lot of oh yeahs going there. <laughs> what was happening in that moment? You, you, you just you didn't you didn't want to you were trying to use your time you just wanted to pass away. You were in a small moment, if maybe in your life, maybe a big moment, where you just you you wanted you just didn't want to engage. You, time was not something you were trying to be efficient using. You were trying to use efficiently because you just wanted to. You were hopeless. You were sad. You didn't think getting up and working would do any better. You didn't think getting up was going to make life any better. In fact, it was just going to be, you were just going to encounter the very frustrations that makes you feel powerless again. And so you lay in bed. Now I'm hoping you can go to sleep. I mean, I want you to, almost everyone in this room has probably felt something like that before. Where you just wanted to lay in bed, not get up, and you were sad. And you felt just hopeless. Now, I want you to think about that. Those of you who've had those experiences, coming out of many of you, at least, the worlds that you've been born into, the privileges and the opportunities and the things. Now, I want you to take that world for a minute, that situation, and I want you to imagine being Lester, who was born into a world where he was either beaded or neglected, where he, where no matter how hard he worked, it always went into a sea of need that just saw no difference when the water never got risen. You know, two stories from my own experience working in the in the hood in Atlanta for four years. Uh, there's there's a guy named Nate. At least remembers Nate. Hey Nate. And we we developed a program. I was in charge of, uh, of this camp, but but basically we had a program where we got high school kids and and uh, with the support of the network with those kids, we we got private industries to be willing to give them a job, knowing that we were there to support, etc. Get them there, get them back, etc. And um, and with these kids, so they were. We had this little job program, and Nate got off the little van one day, and he went right to the store, and he bought him a fishing pole. I'm downtown in the hood. There's not a creek within 20 miles away. He brought a fishing pole. I said, Nate, what you doing? And he said, man, you know, I want a fishing pole. <laughs> and I said, but, but where are you going to fish? You know, and he kind of, he didn't think about it. And I said, Nate, I've noticed this every week. You just go spend every single, every single dime of your money. You go spend it before you even get to home. And that's what he said. I ain't going home with my money. Because <laughs> it'll be taken, it'll be all gone. It'll be all gone. Now, we listen to that and we go, wow, how cruel. But really? If you're going into a home where really there's, there's Uncle Fred who's in, in, in prison and needs to, some legal help in your family, there's food that needs, there's this that needs, there's this that needs, there's this that needs. And, and, and one thing you're going to see in a minute, that, that there's a kind of communalism. And so preserving, saving, investing, no, you use it. The couch is a good trampoline to keep the kids happy. 
Managing time, you want to waste it. You're hopeless. Postponed gratification, this is a true study in Atlanta. Uh, there was a study done where um, they went into the Dunwoody area at the time. It was a very wealthy area. And um, they offered the kids there on the streets. They said, look, I'll tell you what. I'll give you this ice cream right now, or I'll be right here tomorrow precisely at the same time, and I will give you the biggest Sunday you've ever had in your life. And something like 70, 80, I can't remember the exact number, percent of the kids said, I'll meet you here tomorrow. Maxine, is that going to happen in your neighborhood? We went to the area I was in, in Techwood, and uh, I mean 100%. There's no way I trust you or tomorrow. I'll take it now. Now imagine the thousands and thousands of little habits that form out of that worldview of not believing tomorrow. One more story. This is a true story of my life. I'm sitting there with the grandfather. Um, I can see the steps right now. The chair, the dental chair, he's sitting in it right now. And this kid, and we're talking. And he, and I'm doing my little. I'm right at fresh out of college, and I'm eager and all this stuff. And I'm talking about how his kids got so much going for him, and and I'm trying to, you know, do the thing thing and encouraging and, and all of this. And yeah, you know, and I made, I made it there. I said it. He can do anything he puts his mind to, kind of thing. And that grandfather sat there, and you know. And he said, you know, that's, that's, that's not our world. And I don't want my son to be disappointed, my grandson to be disappointed. Now, this is a grandfather who loved, I, I heard that and I went, wow. He's loving his grandson and he's scared because what he's going to see is what after working there for a while I began to see, that the little 11-year-old with the bright and shiny eyes very quickly becomes the 15, 16, 17-year-old with a very dark look on their, in, the, in their eyes. That, that look of, of cynicism, of anger, of, and he said, man, I'm trying to, I, I don't want my kid to get his hopes up and then be disappointed. Y'all know that stuff? It was a sad thing. And so this is the ethics of hopelessness. And by the way, again, I can take every one of these stories I'm giving you and give you a kind of story that I've seen in this church, but not with economic-related hopelessness, but psychological-related hopelessness and social and relational-related hopelessness, which is why, by the way, we have formed as a church two subsidiary uh, uh, communities. One's going to be a counseling center. One's going to be an empowerment foundation. And they're, they're targeting both forms of hopelessness. Upward mobility, you know, future-oriented. These are all the powerlessness, hopelessness, what we call their survival ethic. Nuclear family, no, you know, uh, ethics of hopefulness. Preserve, save, manage time, postpone gratification, upward mobility, future-oriented, individualism, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, heck yeah. Because the system and the privilege makes that possible. Nuclear family-oriented. If you go to the, the, more, the, the, the more hopeful, they're not dependent on anybody. And the more hopeful you get, the more independent you become. And then you go to the ethics of hopelessness. I've already started using they use and spend assets. They might, what we call waste time, or what I might call just, just, just slow it down. Immediate gratification, concede to present conditions. There's a concession that happens here. The grandfather story I just told you about. Now oriented um, and next life. In other words, there's a lot more hope about the next life. We, we're going to talk about where is the kingdom in a minute. Community dependence. I mean, you know, there's a, there is a 
extended familyness that I experience there that we all that I don't have in my own life in many ways. But it might take the form of a gang, or it might take the form of an extended family. How many folks are in your family, Maxine? It's so how many folks are sitting over there in the, in the hill right now that you see every week that's in your family? Just about. Over here? Or over, 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 the, over there in the hill? Just about most of them. So how many people would that be totally? How many people would that be totally? No, it's about maybe 15, 15 people. Can you imagine that? Living in a, in a communal context where 15 15 of you are family and now I bet the household works pretty uh, well chaotic because there's a lot of people but but I bet you there's a kind of um, dependence on each other where everyone's there to help each other you know see that's 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 the powerlessness because the power's not in the in, in this and this and this the power becomes the family and the extended family of that non-transient I mean you just heard it thank you now, here's, here's the questions, though, that I want to ask you, and this kind of gets to us. First of all, if you want to be a cross-cultural person, and I would, again, Chip, I hope you have this seminar in the, direct, the reverse direction in the hill one day. I really think you need to do that. I mean, it'd be cool to help, because you're, in a minute you're going to see all the ways that, that both communities need to help each other. Are you willing, now that we've made that little analysis, and it's been very summation, but are you willing to reconsider the moral high ground of your achiever values? James 2, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom of God that he was promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Guys, that verse is in the Bible. It's clean, it's clear, it does not take a rocket scientist to understand what it says. There is an overwhelming bias in the scripture that poverty can become a means by which the kingdom of God is experienced and discovered. Some kind of poverty. Um, This is a great story about Mother Teresa um, who sits in his chair and, and, um, oh man, I'm tempted to read it. We need a break. Let's do it. I've actually met this woman. Um, you may sit in my chair is what I'm going to read. Let's see, where is that one here? I didn't get the page notes. I didn't know I was going to read it, but I need a, we need a break. I can tell. Y'all see it in the... Oh, yeah, nobody has this here. Somebody go get the book and find this dang thing for me. Where is it, Therese? Come on. Okay, here it is on the first page. Duh. All right. She's 66, mildly retarded, dangerously overweight, twice a great-grandmother, and a devoted member of our church. She lives with four generations of extended family in an overcrowded, dilapidated house, but her buoyant spirit is undaunted. Since losing her youngest son in a senseless murder last Christmas Eve, he was shot while riding with his uncle in a taxi cab, she has redirected much of her affection to me. Bob Lupton. You're my buddy, she says with a broad, snaggletoothed grin. I pray for you every day. And then she gives me a long bear hug. She wants to sit close beside me in every church service. And although the smell of stale sweat and excrement is often nauseating, she makes me feel a little special. Her internal plumbing doesn't work as well as it used to, and she leaves tobacco smears when she kisses my cheek. 
but I am pleased to have Mrs. Smith by my side. She often hints, sometimes blatantly, that she would like to come home with us for a visit. Nothing would delight her more than to have Sunday dinner with my family. But there's a conflict. <laughs> it has to do with my values that Peggy and I learned from childhood. We believe that good stewardship means taking care of our belongings, treating them with respect, and getting long service from them. Our boys know that they are not to track in mud or, or on the carpet or sit on the furniture with dirty clothes. By the way, he lives downtown in the, in the park, Grant Park area where all this is happening. They relocated. To invite Mrs. Smith into our home means we will have filth and stench soil on our couch. There will be stubborn, offensive odors in our living room. My greatest fear is that she will want to sit in my new corduroy recliner. Man, this is old school. I don't think they have corduroy recliners anymore. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be rude and cover it with plastic to protect it from urine stains, but I know it would never be the same again. Unknowingly, Mrs. Smith is forcing a conflict, a clashing of values upon me. Preserve and maintain, conserve and protect. They are the words of an ethic that has served me well. Over time, these values have suddenly filtered into our theology. It is increasingly difficult to separate the values of capitalism from the values of the kingdom. Stewardship has become confused with insurance coverage, with certificates of deposit and protective coverings for our stained glass. It is an offering, a tithe, dropped into a plate to be used on ourselves and our buildings. Somewhere on the way to become rich, we picked up the idea that preserving our property is preferable to using it for people. Why should it be so difficult to decide which is wiser, to open the church for the homeless to rest or to install an electric alarm system to preserve its beauty? Why should it be such a struggle to decide which is more godly, to welcome Mrs. Smith into my home and my corduroy recliner or to preserve the homey aroma of my sanctuary and get extra years of service for my furniture? Is this not precisely the issue of serving mammon or God? How ingenious of my American version of Christianity to make them both one and the same. We did finally invite Mrs. Smith to have Sunday dinner in our home, and she did just as I feared she would. She went straight for my corduroy recliner. <laughs> and it never has been the same. In fact, Mrs. Smith even joined a Bible study in our home the next week. And every Wednesday evening, she heads right to my chair. She even referred to it as her chair. I thank God for Mrs. Smith and the conflict she brings me. And her more clear, and her more clearly than in Sunday school lessons or sermons, I have encountered the Christ of Scripture, saying to me, "And as much as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me." You see, the point of that story is, I hope you hear, is that that when we do cross cultural ministry, it's going to call to question a lot of our values that we hold that are we we can argue and rationalize as morally superior. Um, I think there's much to learn from poverty. So let me just think about it for a minute with you. Um, I'm on A here. I was going to read Foxes Have Holes too. I might get back to it. We need to approach the poor as humble learners. Again, there's another story I could tell you, but I won't. Well, I will. Um, Patty, the uh, senior woman that was, I was a director, she was my sort of senior woman co-director. Uh, we went around the uh, neighborhood of Techwood one day and um, going into homes. We wanted to start a women's Bible study, so I was walking with her, but she was going to teach it. And we went into this home, and we opened the door. This is the same experience my son Nathan had over in the hill once, actually. And, um, and I walked into the home, and compared to the home I grew up with, it had practically nothing. In fact, it was literally empty. It literally had a chair and a TV in the, in the, in the living room. And... Um, and we sat there, and we opened the door. We didn't want to buy We just wanted to tell her we were going to buy. We said, well, please come in. 
And it took two hours to get out of that room. And in those two hours, I, I, all I remember was the experience I had, Pat, Patsy and I, we walked out the door and we both started crying. For we had encountered the very most happy, most positive human being we had ever met in our life. And it was just overwhelming how she blessed us, how she served us, how she loved us. And it just totally blew our mind. As we thought about how hard she worked and how little she had. She, she was, a, I think, a, a, a nurse assistant or something. And, um, and what's the point I'm making? You know, I'm making the point of James. This woman had the kingdom of God in her. And she brought it to us. Who is most prepared, do you think, to enter, to consider the kingdom of God good news? Now, remember what we just learned? Everybody, remember what we just learned about poor and hopelessness and, and hopefulness in this world, in this kingdom, in this, this world? So who would consider it good news that when the kingdom of God comes, the king himself would teach things like, take no thought for tomorrow. Are you kidding me? We plan a year in advance in this church. Still not enough. And it's still not enough. Every single date in our count of next year that's, that's according to the official plan, it was true last year, by the way, just so you all know, is right now in the calendar. A year? Over a year. Hey, Maxine, how long does it take to plan an event over there? You have, you have to take, yeah, around that time, but not... A year? I know right now that you can go over there and say there's a camp tomorrow. Yeah, we, we can do Word it. Word of mouth. Word of mouth just like that. Yeah, we can do it tomorrow. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, take no thought for tomorrow. Think about those hopeless values. Now, I'm not, look, I, if I'm on chips, and when I go to chips seminar over in the hill, there's going to be another side of this story. Okay? There's going to be another side about tomorrow. And we're going to have to balance it in a different way, Chip, aren't we? We're going to talk about over-realized and under-realized eschatology things, but we won't need to ever use those words. You, we don't use those words, brave people. I didn't just use that word. But we're going to talk about that. And we're going to say, okay, hold it now. To have an over-realized eschatology, which means I put more hope in this life related to the kingdom of God, is just as sinful as having an under-realized king, uh, uh, eschatology, which puts not enough hope in this life and too much hope in the next life. So I'm doing a little cross-cultural thing with you guys here. I'm pushing you on the other end. And get pushed on the other end, but I'm pushing you on this end. I've actually taught something like this on the other end as well. Who would consider good news? Take no thought for tomorrow. Who would take consider good news? Don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and dust does corrupt. Don't, don't do that. That's stupid. You know, take it expend it to do something good with it, but don't just preserve it. Who would say, that's good news to be, woe is the rich man? Who would hear it? Good news, harder for the rich man. Da, 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 da. Now you can come into the, I know the theology of these things, but I'm just trying to give you an example just to kind of blow your brain a little bit. Don't assume the moral high ground when you go to Haiti. Or when you go to, you name it. Don't assume that. Jesus is there. 
And he's got something to teach you. And that's going to be the basis of a cross-cultural ministry that works. Is that you're going to go and you're going to expect Jesus to already be there. And you're going to get in touch with that. Um, much to learn from the ethics of poverty. We need to approach the poor as humble learners. Um, you know, I, I read, I give you another. Look at some of the biblical attitudes towards wealth and, and why we need those that are less wealthy than us to help us learn these lessons. Riches alone don't profit a person. The world's view says riches brings happiness. Really? I can show you a lot of... I mean, I, I was also a debutante escort in Georgia and in Darkhead, and I'm telling you that was one of the pr- pr- profound things that I learned is that money does not bring happiness. Don't trust in riches or you'll fall. The world says if you don't trust in riches, you will fall. We've got a conflict here. You know, God's view, poor people can still be wealthy. Really? There's a wealth that transcends this material poverty money? If you don't trust in riches or, or, or poor or cursed by God and are only to be pitied. I mean, this, the moral high ground will often discern that the reason they're poor is because God's not with them because they've done, they're sinful. That's, that's, that's a very uncommon worldly view. It's in the scripture. I already showed it to you. But it's uncommon in scripture for that to be the primary root cause of, of poverty. As I said, it's most often oppression. Um, you can read the rest of these proverbs. Um, Let's, uh, let's get down to uh, number two. Am I willing to get beyond finger pointing and embrace the opportunity for kingdom building? Now this is very important. We've discerned that poverty is, is powerlessness. It's the lack of options. Certainly we have root causes of poverty. It's individual sins, whether it's a marriage struggle, whether it's a, you know, you, know, you, you can talk about different kinds of poverty, right? We've talked about relational poverty, material poverty, psychological poverty, whatever. Yeah, there's some sin issues, perhaps. There's some social sin issues, what we call systemic issues. Yep. And there's also ultimately God's providence. But here's the thing. Are we willing to get beyond finger pointing and embrace the opportunity for kingdom building? And what I mean by this, um, going down to page 7, and this is where you, you begin to understand that, that if we're going to kingdom build, we're going to again go back to Lester's story, and we're going to begin to empower people with the gospel rather than placate or patronize people with the gospel. There's a big difference. Charity... Just charity, according to Bob Lupton, who's been working in the inner city of Atlanta now for probably 40 years, is toxic. Charity is not biblical. Now, I know you could probably interpret charity to be biblical. If you use the, depending on the way I'm using it, charity is not biblical. What is? Charity, if you mean by that, just giving something with no no consequence for their own empowerment, you see. So what we're looking for is an empowerment-based versus a charity-based kind of giving where you build a person up inside out with the gospel. You start with their identity in the gospel. And you build upon that identity by actions and the way you treat one another. Like I said, you receive a gift. You, you on and it goes. Am I willing, again, to target the redemptive issue of poverty rather than merely the temporal issues? I want to read this one. This kind of illustrates perfectly. Page 22, Christmas again. You liking these stories? 
Yes. Kind of nice to kind of have some stories every once in a while. Here's another one. This is very short. Christmas again. Damn. His words are barely audible, but his wife knows his feeling very well. She sees the hurt come into his eyes when the kids come home from school talking about what they want for Christmas. It is the same expression she sees in the faces of other unemployed fathers around the house housing project. She knows this year will be no difference from the last. All her husband's hustle in day, is day labor jobs, his pickup work, will not be enough to put presents under a tree. They will do well to keep the heat on. His confident, promising deceptions allow the children the luxury of their dreams a little longer. She will cover for him again because she knows he's a good man. His lies are his wishes. His flawed attempts to let his children know what the older ones know, but never admit the gifts are not from daddy. He will not go with her to stand in the free toy lines with all the others. He cannot bring himself to do it. It is too stark of a reminder of his own impotence. And if their home is blessed again this year with a visit from a Christian family bearing food and beautifully wrapped presents for the kids, he will stay in the bedroom until they are gone. He will leave the smiling and the graciousness to his wife. His joy for the children will be genuine, but so is the heavy ache in his stomach as his image of himself as a provider is dealt another blow. Christmas. That wonderful, awful time when giving hearts glow warm and bright. Notice that giving hearts glow warm and bright while fading embers of a poor man's pride are doused black. You know, um, Bob Lupton, um, very quickly when he went down there, noticed the men just kind of walking out the back door during Easter because there was a big crusade to bring you know, to in this community, there was churches around that would bring turkeys, a turkey dinner, and um, and they would just flood the community. It was a big church, and they would bring a turkey dinner to every home. And Bob left and said, I, "No, out, gone. <laughs> um, no more turkey dinners at Easter because of what it was doing to the dads." And then they created a, a, a store and doing something of what we're trying to do here both employing people, but also letting families take control of their life and be empowered. This is the difference between charity and empowerment. It's when you love someone enough. Now think about it. I want to, this is where we need to, why would we be tempted to charity? It's yep. easy and quick. It's easy and quick. We can do it on a half a day. Yeah, David? Well, the problem is, is that you keep the power. There you go. charity. Dependence. You create dependence, but you keep the power. You feel good about yourself. Yes. It's more yeah. blessed to give than to receive, and that's true. You bring power. You feel good. You come home after this charity afternoon, and boy, this is a great Christmas. And while you're drinking cocktails, you tell the story of going downtown that day. And it feels so good. Yeah. I think it's easy to confuse um, a response that's appropriate in one context for response that's appropriate in another context. So the, you mentioned the three causes of poverty. I don't think it actually lists the third one, but calamity, right? Um, just, you know, floods and Katrina and things like that, right? And, and hurricanes. And um, and so in certain cases, when people have been wiped out, right? Like, well, I did know it's called Providence. I put that as Providence. Providence, right? Um, the, uh, well, anyway, the, there's, 
there are certain cases where people don't have something and we can give and that, that might be the right response right. in response to calamity. But There's no doubt. You don't solve you don't solve systemic things, right? The right. second, you don't, you don't solve oppression, right? That's right. With momentary things that... And if you've been trained here in our mercy ministry, it's exactly right, Trey. We, we emphasize crisis versus chronic. And, and you've got to get beyond the crisis. The tendency, though, is that, that crisis creates a chronic because of charity. Yeah, Mike, you were asking why, why, good, why is it tempting to, to do the, the yeah. turkey, right? In part right. because it's... It's sort of good, and some there are certain yeah. circumstances where it is good, and so we're tempted to see it as no, it. Yeah. a solution. And other that's good. No, you're right. It's, it is good. I mean, in, in these these crisis situations, crisis, you need charity. If you want to use that term, I don't like the word charity, but yes, you sure. need it. Um, but yeah, but the key thing is it can become very toxic very fast. Except that money has to come to. In other words, stop the bleeding, you know. But then very quickly turn. To okay, what do we got to do to get this person empowered, and where are the assets? To see the assets belonging to that first, first you evaluate. It's called an assets-based mercy program, but that's where you start with that person as the greatest asset you have to help them. That's the difference. Now we have we have done a, we have done. I think at least last year, two full seminars on asset-based um, mercy, and, and so I'm not going to here reproduce that. This is more cross-cultural, just trying to get to understand it. But, um, but I do have a nice little thesis here, you know, um, from Lupton. The compassion industry is almost universally accepted as virtuous and constructive enterprise, but its outcomes are almost entirely unexamined. And he does an examination. And basically, if you read this, you'll see what he says. Years of charitable giving at home and abroad have made barely a dent in reducing poverty and often encouraged dependency. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, the billions of dollars of charity and how little effect it's had. The key to an empowerment, empowerment versus enablement Oriented charity is to distinguish and proactive target chronic management from crisis management, such as to empower self-sustaining and systemic changes, maximizing indigenous leadership and resources. Our commitment then is to an asset-based community development. This is a glass-half-full strategy that focuses on a community strengths worth more than it needs. It takes seriously the gifts and talents of the poor and seeks to do ministry in the community with them rather than for them, thus protecting people's dignity. As an embodiment of empowerment focused in church-based strategy for compassion ministry, Mission Unabandoned adopts the following, and this came out of obviously a thing that we were doing. Never do for the poor what they can do for themselves. Limit one-way giving to emergencies. Empower the poor, which is what your point is. Empower the poor through employment, lending, investing, using grants sparingly to reinforce achievements. Subordinate self-interest to the needs of those being reserved. Listen closely to those you seek to help. Above all, do no harm. And of course, that's kind of a catch-all. But the point he's getting at, I mean, one of the reasons we do charity is guilt. And, and, and you think about it, that's a very selfish thing to do. We think it might be good, but it's selfish. Because what we're doing is saying, I'm feeling guilty for my life, and therefore doing these things to kind of say, oh, I feel better about myself. And so there's a lot of, I know this is a hard lesson here. This is tough. I, I'm, this is getting tough, isn't it? But, but if we're going to be in this kind of a world where we are a multi-congregational church of multi-cultures, multi, and we're going to next to ethnicity and multi-culture, uh, 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 economic status, we're, the key thing I'm trying to hit on is we're going to have to abandon the moral high ground. We're going to have to truly be interested to learn from one another, from each other's congregations, to, to learn that, that there's much that we have to give one another. 
um, as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. Jesus is no less present in Whitney as he is in the hill, as he is in Fairfield, as he is in East Rock. And if we can just take that simple idea, if hopefully today you've become, become exposed to the idea that, wow, there's a human being with a history here that I'm interacting with. And there are systemic issues much, much, much bigger than probably you know that can play into what is happening in this person's life. But never, never, never do you, do you therefore, what's the word I'm looking for, cave into or acquiesce to those systemic issues. The worst thing you can, I mean, I had another kid who was starting to name Malcolm, Lisa remembers Malcolm, and he was one of my favorite little kids, had the personality of just the greatest personality in the world. He used to, when we played basketball, he would, before there was ever such a thing as rapping, I'm not lying to you, that's how long ago I was doing this, but he would rap, call a basketball game. I mean, do this stuff, right? And off he'd go with the basketball game. He's just a brilliant guy. And, and two years into the ministry, you know, with, the, with all that was going on, um, you know, the best way to make money, of course, in the hood, at least in that day, I guess it's true, is, is, is to be with, with a drug dealer. And his job was to stand the post and watch for, for narcs, etc., and he'd make money. And his whole life was changing. I could see it. Now, what are you going to say? I know all the systemic issues. I don't know them all, but I know there are deep, serious, systemic issues behind Malcolm's life. I knew that with Lester, etc., the people we've read about. But you will never say, poor you. You know, there is just, there, you're, there are overwhelming odds in this world, and you will never survive it. I mean, right? That's what you're going to say, right? Wrong. No, we're going to also believe in the power of the gospel and the power of the human dignity that's in Lester. He has power. And it's my job and your job to help them discover that power. So when you're sitting on that, that, that court tomorrow or that field and, or that art, think about everything you say and do in relationship to giving this person, helping this person learn again about him or herself being made in the image of God. And helping this person discover the power of that. Not only in terms of this common grace areas that mostly we've talked about, but of course that's what the gospel is all about. And the way that happens, and you've heard me tell the story before, uh, the Sigmund, uh, I'm going to let you read it, but there's a great psychologist, a psychiatrist who did an experiment that beautifully illustrates the gospel and what you should do. I hope you'll go home. It's a fun little uh, story to read. I hope you'll go home. Some of you heard it, right? How many of you heard the Sigmund dog story that I've told about, uh, you know, about 10 of you? It's good, isn't it? You like that story? So now you guys go read it because I just don't have the time to do it. I'm going to give you a five-minute break, and then we're going to spend about 40 minutes. I think we – I can't see that clock. What time is it? Okay, we're going to be through by 8, and we're going to spend about 40 minutes on, uh, F, uh, on race. I think you're going to enjoy this. Please stay. This is really important.